Over the past several months, we've been moving through the Exodus, God drawing his people out of the land of slavery and bondage in Egypt and drawing them unto his holy mountain. We are coming this morning to that holy mountain. Uh, So we'll be reading uh, Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 6, and our complementary passage is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. So if you would open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, in honor of God's word, please stand. First Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 9, hear God's word. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you are not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy. But now you have received mercy. Thus far in the reading of God's word, please turn to Exodus chapter 19, beginning in verse 1 and continuing in the reading of God's word. On the new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. As far in the reading of God's word, let us pray. Father, as we have read and we now come to the preaching and the hearing of your word, we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes. Slay the one who needs slaying. Heal the one who needs healing. Encourage the discouraged. Strengthen the weak and feeble. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. So the great question of the book of Exodus is, who is God? That's how Moses opens his his dialogue with God when God appears to him on Mount Sinai. God says, out of the burning bush, Moses tells him that he's going to go into Egypt and he's going to draw his people out. And Moses' question is, who are you? Who, should I say, is coming or is, is, is calling That question is also asked by Pharaoh. When Moses stands in front of Pharaoh and he says, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, 
Pharaoh says, I have no idea who this God is. I don't know Jehovah. I don't know why I should listen to him. Well, Pharaoh begins to discover pretty powerfully just who God is. The plagues and then finally Pharaoh charging. And and again, just the insanity of charging into the face of a miracle as the Red Sea is parted and Pharaoh and all his armies cannot explain this naturalistically. It clearly is the hand of God and yet so blinded and driven by hatred that they will charge into the very teeth of a miracle in order to wipe these people out. Pharaoh discovers who God is. Moses discovers who God is. But the children of Israel also need to discover who God is. And so we've got these previous chapters, the last three chapters that we've looked at, where the children of Israel face a number of problems. First, there's brackish water. And God makes that water sweet. Then there's lack of food. And God provides manna. Then there's a lack of water entirely. And so God tells Moses to strike the rock. And good water gushes forth. And then there's the attack of the Amalekites. And God defends his people. With Moses and his hands raised with Aaron uh, with, with uh, Aaron and her on either side holding his hands up in the air. So we see who God is for Moses. We see who God is for Pharaoh. We see who God is for Egypt or for uh, Israel. Now we're entering into a new phase of the book. All of the geographic movement in this book, all of the wandering, leaving Egypt and crossing through this wilderness and that wilderness comes to a stop. For the rest of the book, we're all going to be camped in this spot at Sinai. And there are going to be two main themes that are going to occupy the remainder of the book. The first is God's covenant with the children of Israel. And that's going to be chapters 19 through 24. And then how God wants the children of Israel to worship Him. And that's where we're going to get into the tabernacle and the mercy seat and all of these all of these things and that picks up in chapter 25 and goes through the end of the book so god's covenant with the children of israel and god's worship how god is to be worshiped are going to be the two main themes that are hammered out here so we begin with this sort of preamble in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 19. The children of Israel have come to the wilderness at the plains of, of Sinai there. They're camped in front of the mountain where God is going to deliver his law. And God tells Moses to pass this communication on to them. Now, if you noticed in our chapter, or in, in our passage, we read that God says, if you keep my covenant, then I'll be a God to you, I'll uh, make you a kingdom of priests, all those sorts of things. So I want to look at this preamble this morning, and I want to note just three things out of these first six verses. The first is, God makes a covenant. 
what on earth is a covenant? Uh, I won't ask for a show of hands, but I imagine many of you have HOAs, homeowners associations. If you are in an HOA, then you signed, when you purchased your house, you signed what is called a covenant. Uh, is, is that what we're talking about here? Is, is this sort of in the, in the realm of the HOA agreement? So what, what is this covenant? What is this idea of covenant? And then secondly, what is the basis for this covenant? What is the grounds upon which God's covenant is, is, is based? And then thirdly, what are the results or the promises of the covenant? So what a covenant is, what the basis for this covenant is, and then the results or the promises of the covenant. Now, very simply, a covenant can be as simple and mundane as a homeowner's association. It comes from ancient Near East suzerain treaties. Now, that's a long way of saying when a king says, I'm going to be over this country. He's he's the king of, let's say, the Amalekites, and he's going to be taking over Midianites. It's not his own people necessarily, it's another people that he's entering into a mutual defense agreement with. There was a specific form that they would follow. And we've already seen that, if you're you're familiar with the scriptures, you know back in Genesis, when God establishes his covenant with Abraham. He, He takes these animals, he divides them, and he passes between the carcasses. And, and that is a very common element of an ancient covenant treaty. The king would take an animal, he would cut it in half, and then he and the representative of the country that he was going to be entering into this relationship with would walk between the pieces of the animal. And the reason for that is that it was a very visual and very public statement, if I don't live up to my end of the agreement, may I end up on the ground slaughtered like these animals are. And vice versa, if you don't live up to your end of the agreement, you are going to end up slaughtered like these animals are. And so so that's what the covenant concept is here, is that there's going to be a king... And he's going to do certain things for his people. Now, immediately when we get into this particular covenant, and this particular covenant begins here in chapter 19, and it goes on through the giving of the the Ten Commandments, immediately we start getting into theological hot water. There are... Ten theologians with twelve opinions <laughs> on everything about this chapter, or about this entire covenant episode. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were given a very clear command by God. It was perpetual and perfect obedience. And God said, if you do not, perpetually and perfectly obey me, you will die. 
That's known as a covenant of works. Adam and Eve have to work. They've got to do the things necessary not to incur the penalty of death. And so this covenant of works is be holy, and if you're not holy, I'm going to kill you. Is that what the Ten Commandments is? Is the Ten Commandments, and our theological people who love to cross swords with one another, they refer to this as republication. And specifically, is the Ten Commandments a republishing of the covenant of works? Is it the covenant of works part two? Because clearly God says here, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you will be a special people. So God is setting up a standard here of works righteousness, some would say. It is the covenant of works republished. So that's one area of, of controversy here. But another area of controversy where people disagree, we know that Christ Jesus kept the law perfectly. He was the only sinless human being who has ever walked this earth. Christ Jesus kept the law. So does that mean that you and I are no longer under the law? We are now under grace. Because Christ Jesus kept the law on our behalf. And so therefore we don't have to worry about the law. This is a, a position that number of number of people hold. You heard a little bit of it there in Galatians in our reading of the law. That if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So is the law something that is negative, that is dark? If you're familiar with the Pilgrim's Progress, uh, you'll know that when evangelist meets Christian, uh, he points him towards the wicked gate and says, go keep that light in your eye and that's where you'll find salvation. But then Mr. Worldly Wise Man meets Christian as he's on his way to the wicked gate and goes, oh, this is a much better way here. And he leads him to Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai is thundering and, and crashing and threatening. And so Christian becomes absolutely paralyzed with fear. And he cannot move forward or backwards because of this horrific law that is hanging over his head warning him that if he's not perfect, he'll be condemned. An evangelist comes along and says, who told you to go this way? I told you to go to the narrow gate. I told you to go to the cross. Go to the cross, don't go to the law. And so a lot of people will say the law is dark. It's threatening. It's a negative thing. It's fulfilled in Christ and therefore we're no longer under it. Or... Another controversy in this, and trust me, <laughs> I'm, I'm nowhere near laying out the comprehensive ways in which all people disagree about all this stuff. But another major controversy here is, is this covenant uniquely made with Israel? 
And therefore, the promises are to Israel as a nation. And therefore, they cease when Israel as a nation ceased to exist in A.D. 70. Is this a uniquely national covenant? If it's made with a unique political entity, then when that political entity is no longer in existence, the covenant is no longer in existence. There's no more national Israel to live up to the terms of the covenant. Well, I hope that as we go through this, not just this morning in brief, but as we, as we go through these next few chapters, I hope that we'll see that this covenant is a glorious and beautiful reality. It's a, it's a joyful reality. And it's something that, you know, you think of, think of the psalmist in the Psalm 119 or, uh, in, in Psalm 1, uh, the law of God roots me firmly. It's a lamp to my feet. It's a guide to my, to my path. The law of God is beautiful. And I hope that we can see and that we'll begin to appreciate the beauty of God's law as we move forward through these next few chapters. So, in brief, with regards to all of the various controversies, no, this is not a republication of the covenant of works. Yes, Christ fulfilled it, but it's holy, and he says, as long as heaven and earth exist, not one jot or one tittle of the law will pass away. Paul is speaking about something very different when he says that you're not under the law. He's not speaking about the law uh, here in terms of God's moral law. I believe that Paul is speaking very clearly about the ceremonial uh, law, the sacrifices and those types of things, going through the outward forms. And no, it is not unique to Israel. And just as demonstration of that is both our call to worship and our complementary passage. Did you notice language both in Revelation chapter 1, which refers to the kingdom of priests and holy nation, that John is saying these churches in Asia Minor, these Gentiles, are part of. And then in, in our complementary passage in 1 Peter, 1 Peter applies this promise very directly and very clearly to the Gentile church. He says, you were once not a people, but now you are a people. You once were under God's wrath, but now you have received mercy. You are a kingdom of priests and holy to the Lord. That's what Paul or Peter says in his first epistle that we read earlier. So all of that is my succinct answer to books and books and books of controversy on all sides. I'll let you guys flesh it out from there. We'll stick with that. A covenant is God making a binding agreement with his people. Now, what's the basis for that covenant? Because here's where we get to, is this a law by which you're going to earn salvation? In other words, can you be right with God by keeping his law? When he says, be holy as I am holy, has he given to you a command that it is possible for you to obey. 
This was the classical debate between Augustine and Arminius. Arminius said, a god who gives you a command that you are incapable of keeping is capricious. He's cruel. It would be similar to me saying to an infant, you need to drive down to the grocery store and get me a, a, a gallon of milk. And if you don't do it, I'm going to spank you because you've disobeyed me. That would be horrible. I should be turned over to child protective services if I do that kind of nonsense. You don't give someone a command that is beyond their ability to perform and then punish them for not performing it. That's Arminius's basic argument. And Augustine, his, his, his famous line, it, just, it absolutely tripped Arminius's fuse when Augustine wrote, command what you will and grant what you command. Whoo, man, Arminius did not like that. <laughs> that is horrible. <laughs> that God would command and simultaneously would need to grant uh, the, what, what is commanded. So, so again, to ask our, 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 our question here, to ask our question, what is the basis of this covenant? What is the basis of this relationship that God enters into with his people? Well, we're not left in the dark. Look at verse 4, chapter 19 and verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. What did the children of Israel do to earn their way into this place where they are at the foot of Mount Sinai? Absolutely nothing. They did absolutely nothing. Except when Moses said, okay, it's time to start walking, they started walking. And when Moses said, it's time to stop, they stopped. But these people, and, and we've seen them over the last few chapters, these are some really horrible people. <laughs> they first start out grumbling against God and against Moses, and God responds with giving them manna. But then they go a step further when they think they can't find any drinking water. They actually threaten Moses' life. Moses goes before God and says, these people are about to kill me. These are not sweet, docile Christians holding hands and waltzing through flowery deserts. These are some really ugly people. And God says, you're my possession. You're my treasure. You're my beloved. I bore you on eagle's wings. What a gorgeous passage. I'm sure that that's something that many of you have got, have got memorized or cross-stitched, or it, it's, it's on motivational Christian posters. It, it's just glorious. It's beautiful how God bore them up on majestic wings and brought them unto himself, not because they earned it. They've not done a thing to earn this beautiful response. But it's not just here. It's actually reiterated in the Ten Commandments themselves, if you look just one chapter over, when God gives the Ten Commandments, 
uh, he prefaces it with, in chapter 20 and verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so I think this is critically important. Absolutely critical. If you're going to have a good understanding of the law in relationship to the Christian, in relationship to the believer, it is absolutely critical that you understand this law is given to people who have been redeemed. It's not a way of salvation. It is thankful response to salvation. That's what the law serves as. The basis of this covenant is very clearly God has redeemed. And when you and I begin to look at the law, In that light, how much God has done for you? How much God, I mean, okay, let's, let's be honest. Let's be honest. The command, the, the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. How many guys, and maybe how many women too, but I think this is probably more prevalent among guys. How many guys would just as soon not have that command <laughs> in the Ten Commandments? Uh, and, and specifically, when Christ goes further and says, if you ever look upon a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. All of a sudden, I don't think there's a guy here that can stand and raise his hand and go, yep, no, nope, I'm pure. Never has happened to me. Not not a problem for me. So maybe let's let's leave that one out. That's that's a little difficult. That's a little that's a little difficult for me to live up to. I, I'm I'm continually reminded of my failure, my sin against God. All all of the Ten Commandments are that way, though. You shall have no other gods before me. There shall be nothing in your life that takes greater priority than your relationship with God and your obedience to Him. Now, the fact that we're all here certainly indicates that there is some priority. But can any of us truly say there is absolutely nothing that comes close in terms of what I'm afraid of, in terms of what I'm passionate for, hopeful for, working towards. There is nothing that even is on the horizon compared to God and being like Him, loving Him, and following after Him. If you can say that, A, you ought to be standing up here because you're way holier than I am, and B, you're lying. Uh, So don't bother getting up here. (laughs) Because... None of us, none of us can truly say he is my portion and my delight exclusively. We know we should. We know we should say that. We want to say that. I desire to be the kind of man that can truly reflect that consistently throughout. But you ask anybody, particularly my children, my wife and my home, the people that see me 24-7, And they'll tell you, yeah, my dad is a flawed human being. I think any 
human being by nature is. But when we see God's law, when we see God's law as grounded first in salvation, then we begin to see the beauty of holiness, the beauty of God's law. What Jesus Christ, what God in Christ did for you on that cross, if you truly understand, looking at the law, the depth of your sin, the the multifaceted corruption that exists in each of us, and then you turn from that and you behold your Savior, Jesus Christ, Man, you ought to be thankful. I know I am. I am so thankful. I am so grateful for what that Savior did for me. Because I don't deserve any of it. I deserve His wrath. The message of the Scripture is clear. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one who seeks after righteousness. No, not even one. You are not a seeker. You are not trying your best. You are not doing the best job that you possibly can. You stink. So do I. And the more we see that in reflection to God's law, the more we see our glorious and beautiful Savior who came down to take a nasty, filthy, worm like me and Make me holy. Call me his beloved. Call you unto himself. The basis for that joy, the basis for that life, is the redemption that's spelled out in verse 4. And then thirdly, the result. The, 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 what this covenant, that God is making with the people, what this covenant results in. And there are three things specifically that are mentioned here. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. There are three elements here that are the result of God's saving grace to the children of Israel and his call to holiness that is going to be coming in in, in the coming chapters. And the first is God's people, the church under age, Christians in the Old Testament, and as Peter shows us, as John shows us in the Revelation, this is one body, this is one group of the redeemed. The church are specially preserved and cared for by God. They are His people. Treasured possession. There's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of bad stuff that happens around the world. A lot of persecution against Christians in China. There's a lot of believers in Ukraine right now that are undergoing tremendous suffering. Our culture 
here in the United States of America seems to be increasingly hostile to the church and to the Christian faith. It's increasingly becoming political suicide (laughs) to stand up and say, I believe in the Word of God, and I believe that everything God's Word says is absolutely true and comes from His mouth. Try, Try running for public office with that kind of a statement, you're immediately going to get labeled as just another version of ISIS, some jihadist that is that is going to roll through the town and kill all the non-believers. Our culture is increasingly hostile. And so where's our hope? Where's our comfort? If God, the maker of heaven and earth, God, the creator of the universe, has said, you are his treasured possession. And then how much danger can you and I ever be? What, what, what can ever shake our confidence? That's Paul's message, isn't it? What shall separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord? Shall height, nor depth, nor anything in all the world. Separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you know that God and do you have that confidence and trust and rest that you are His treasured possession? The second benefit that comes from this covenant, he says, you are going to be a kingdom of priests. Now what does a priest do? A priest represents the people to God and represents God to the people. That's what a priest does. He is the representative of God as he speaks to the people. And as he offers sacrifices, he is the representative of the people before God. And God says that every one of you, everyone is going to be a priest. You're going to have that direct relationship with God. You're going to have that direct relationship not only that that straightens out and warms and guards your heart in Christ Jesus our Lord, but then also others are going to see. You're going to be a light on a hill. You're going to be the, the, the means by which God draws others to Himself because you are His representative. Now before we pour water all over that one, (laughs) let's go on to the third one, which is that you're holy. You are His treasured possession. You are His priests, His representatives. And you are marked out by Holiness. Would you say that's what the church is? Broadly speaking. Would you say that's the reputation that the church has today? Would you say that you, personally, individually, feel particularly holy? Would you say that you, personally, would stand here and and just immediately go, yeah, yeah, I know that I am His treasured possession. I know that I represent Him 
in a lost and dying world. And I am holy. I look at these commands that he gives, and by God's grace, I've done them all. I am holy, praise Jesus. There's a lot of people that will try to tell you that that's what you are. A lot of people will tell you that you should be. But the fact of the matter is, there's not a one of us that is. There is not a one of us that can say, holiness, that's me. If you, if you think you can, please talk to me. Please, because you don't understand the gospel. You don't get it. You are lost and dead in your trespasses and sins if you really think that you're good with God on the basis of what you do. You try better than anybody else. You're not as bad as anybody else. You're just doing your best and God grades on a curve. All of that garbage will send you straight to hell. It may make you feel really good about yourself. You'll be patting yourself on the back on the gates into hell. But your destination is the same. But Jesus Christ, beloved, that gap, that gap between what is in your life, that gap between what the church is and what the church should be, what you should be. We know what we should be. Read the law. That gap between what you are and what you should be, that's the obedience of Christ. That is Christ's obedience. That is where Christ's obedience given to you is your most treasured possession. That is where you can begin to live joyfully Seeing afresh that gap between what I am and what God declares me to be. He declares me to be His treasured possession. He declares me to be His representative in the world. He declares me to be holy. And that gap between what I see in myself and what God declares me to be, that's Jesus Christ. That is the work of Jesus Christ. Beloved, that's why it is so critically important that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. That is why the resurrection is at the very heart of your joy. Because walking according to the law, you're walking in harmony with God's purposes. Why is adultery a bad thing? Why is immorality, sexual immorality, a terrible thing? Because there is a rational answer to it. It works against the grain of God's purposes. God's purpose is, it is not good for a man to be alone. I will therefore make a woman suitable for him to be his helper. That's the purposes of God in the man-woman relationship. And so when I treat that as something casual, when I treat that as something to be pursuing my own narcissism and my own, my own selfishness, when I treat that in a bad way, I'm going to pick up splinters. If I run my hand against the grain of the wood, it's going to hurt. 
And it is going to hurt when I blow up relationships, when I destroy the people who depend on me, when I destroy my children and, and the way that they look up to me and, and count on me to be the right thing and be the right person. And I do mess that up in a hundred different ways. And every time I do, it's picking up a splinter. But here's the way. Here's the way to walk in harmony with what God has called you and me to do. The risen Christ is a declaration. He declares that he has conquered sin. He has conquered death itself. Mount Sinai no longer threatens, but Mount Sinai now stands as a beacon. It stands as a light. It stands as a guide. Something to tell you and to tell me what holiness looks like. Not a way to achieve it, but to show us what God has done for us in Christ. And to show us that Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, is now seated at God's right hand, is now praying for you and for me. That's what the writer to the Hebrews says. He's gone behind the curtain. And he is now praying that you and I will be kept, that you and I will be made holy, that you and I will be preserved and ultimately brought home. And tell me, do you think the father is going to listen to his son and say, nah. The father loves his son. The son loves his father. And as the father listens to the Son's intercession for you and for me. We are guaranteed. We are preserved. So this law of God, this covenant that He makes with us, is not a covenant of death. It can be. If you try to look at this as a way to earn your salvation, yeah, it's a covenant of death. If, if, if your bottom line, I, mean, I, th- I think humans, Standards, but certainly Western, the standard for salvation is do your best, right? Do your best. I mean, come on. I'm not a mass murderer. I'm not Putin. Putin's a bad guy. That's not me. I didn't go invade anybody. Those are bad people over there. Beloved, listen to me carefully. Do your best is hell. That's where do your best gets you. Because God does not say do your best. He says be perfect. Be holy as I am holy. Beloved, you're not. And I'm not. But we have a Savior. We have one who is risen. And that is what changes everything. This is no longer some dry message of an ancient culture 4,000 years ago, basic principles for living, how to have a happy life. That's not what this is. That is not what is going on here. What's going on here is the risen and reigning Jesus Christ who has 
purchased a people for himself, who secures them. And before the Father says, these are my treasured possession. These are my priests. These ones are my holy ones. And so you and I can stand before the Father with joy. And we can look at his law and what the psalmist say, your law is a delight. It is my portion, day and night. It is a light to my feet and a lamp to my path. Because it is a joyful thanksgiving that motivates your obedience. Not a desperate struggle to do your best. That joyful obedience is real. Because our Savior is real. We gather this day, this day out of the year, but certainly every Lord's Day. (laughs) The reason that we worship on Sunday is because it is the day of resurrection. We gather to remember, to profess that this is where our life is. This is where our life is hidden. That Jesus Christ's body was torn apart. Your and my bodies deserve it. You and I should be torn apart for the way in which we profane God's name. But beloved, we're not. We're healed. We're healed because He was torn apart. Ripped for you and for me. His blood shed for you and for me.